Welcome to the 57th lesson in our study of the book of Revelation. I've titled it, The Third Trumpet, The Bitter Star. We'll be taking our verses from Revelation chapter 8, verses 10 and 11. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch. And it fell on a third of the rivers, and on the springs of water. And the name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. Now the question f- facing us every time we come to the scripture, but especially when we come to the prophetic books, and it seems like it comes to a crisis point here in Revelation, is how do we interpret? What is our consistent hermeneutical practice in trying to understand the scriptures? Are we going to allegory? Are we going to assign meanings to all this imagery so that it makes sense to us. And certainly this has been the practice historically. And when I say historically, I mean during the church age or about the second century onward with the rise of uh, Valentinius and Gnosticism coming into uh, Christianity and, and the picking up of the Hellenistic allegorical application method toward their own mythology that was picked up by the Hebrews in Alexandria, trying to explain why God didn't do what they thought he was supposed to be doing. Origin and others. Then explain the Hebrew scriptures. Well, God didn't really mean historically he was going to do these things. He really meant we were supposed to interpret it and assign special meanings based upon, of course, Gnosticism. And this practice then came into the Christian church and was codified in Roman Catholicism. And remember, nearly every faith that we call Christian today grew out of Catholicism. or heavily influenced by the old Catholicism. And so, like its tendrils, roots, it, it, the structure goes everywhere. It came to a crisis point in the late 19th century with higher criticism, uh, decimating the uh, uh, traditional view of Scripture, and, and what he did is, is it tried to apply science to Scripture, which is applying empirical to non-empirical, but yet it violated its own empiricism. So now we're going to supply our own meanings. Augustine had set the tone for this, 
making up rules for using allegorical methodology. And like most people who did this, he then violated his own rules because they're not biblical. You're reading into Scripture rather than reading out of Scripture. The reaction to this in the late 19th century was the fundamental movement and not the fundamental movement of the mid to late 20th century, but the early fundamental movement sought to reinstate the traditional exegetical, let's get our meaning from scripture, hermeneutical interpretive methodology. However, they did not think through their terminology very well, and they said, we're going to use literalism. We're not going to do allegorical. We're going to do literalism. We're going to take the Bible literally at face value, which opened them up to uh, failure. By the time we come to the late 20th century, they'd begun to retract from that literal position and said, we misspoke. We meant to say normative. And when they did mean to say normative, because you look at prophetic literature as prophetic literature, you look at historical literature through historical literature means, and so on and so forth. Well, we do this constantly. When you come to a newspaper, assuming you still read newspapers, you read it as a newspaper. You don't read it as poetry. Uh, when you come to science fiction, you go into the sci-fi mindset or you go into fantasy literature, fiction. You read it as through a fantasy lens. All these techniques borrow from the scripture. When you come to Old Testament history, it's usually... Uh, heralded by the Va. The Va is everywhere. And it lets you know that this is to be interpreted or understood historically. But when you come to poetic literature, like in the Psalms, like in Proverbs, the Va is, well, it's just not nearly as prominent. In prophetic literature, is in a class of its own. It doesn't mean now that when you're doing Isaiah and prophetic literature, you don't have historical literature mixed in. You do. And so you have to be careful because ancient Hebrew, as it was written out, did not have punctuation or spaces. It was just all slammed together because space was at a premium. But punctuation was pretty much added later on, especially in the Renaissance as they started unearthing and rediscovering these documents. And not just uh, Hebrew and not just scripture, but classical Greek literature too. And they started translating it and adding in punctuation and making it 
compatible with their language and we picked it up and made it compatible with English. So we really need to understand that some of these transitions occur in mid-sentence, our mid-sentence. And, and Christ talks about this where he demonstrates it. When he stood up in the synagogue and he opened up the book of Isaiah and he read through a portion of Isaiah and sat down and said, today this has been fulfilled before you. But he stopped in mid-sentence because the rest of that thought concerns his second coming. Well, we've come into the same problem here with Revelation, especially as we are in the trumpet, as the commonly called the trumpet judgments. Uh, I take umbrance with the, the labeled judgment. They're not called that. They're just called the seven angels blew the seven trumpets. And as we've discussed, these trumpets are announcements. What are they announcing? They are announcing that man does not have good control. You want to be as gods, then you need to have understanding. And understanding is demonstrated by control of nature. Is there precedence for this? Well, certainly there is, and I've talked about it before. Job took umbrance with God for the bad things that came into his life. And he said, well, I'll just put my complaints on my shoulder, march into heaven, and tell God off. And the upshot is, and when you get to chapter 38, after Eliphaz uh, demonstrates that Job's an idiot, that there is access to knowledge about God, other than his three friends who didn't have a clue about God, and Job, who had somewhat more of a clue about God, but not really. He was religious, but he wasn't saved. And it was works-based, but it wasn't grace-based. I will earn my way before God, and God will like me then because I'm earning it, and I'm doing it all right. And then when that fell apart, because obviously Job didn't change his practices, but bad things still happened, Job gets all upset about it. Now, there are elements of truth in what he says, but there's a lot of error in what he says also. And we actually come down to the point where it's just all me. It's all me-based. I do this. I and I and I and I and I. And God ain't doing his part, but I am. And that's not how salvation works. It's not about us. It's not about works. The works flow from a changed nature, a changed heart. In the Old Testament, you had to have a changed heart. Well, you can't change your heart. God changes your heart. 
And so when we get to chapter 38 of Job, God then makes an appearance as a whirlwind, tornado, speaking from it. Once again, this demonstration of separation because of unrequited holiness. Christ hasn't come, obviously. Christ hasn't died, obviously. Therefore, there is this gulf of separation. It's not going to be uh, traversed until Christ presents himself after the Stavros in heaven, having paid the penalty for sin. And of course, as we saw and as we've talked before, the fiery throne of Daniel becomes the peaceful, non-fiery throne with the living water flowing from it that we're going to encounter in Revelation toward the end of the, of the book. <clears throat> Revelation is detailing the process of reworking the second age, bringing the second age to a close. And these trumpets are announcing that God has control. The seals demonstrated the results of man's attempted control on the earth. But God in the trumpets is saying, well, first of all, you don't have control on the earth because you've got famine, you have disease, you've got death, you've got wars. Everything's falling apart. But there's more than earth. There's surrounding earth. There's the solar system. There is our little sector of the galaxy. There is the galaxy. There are galaxies. There is the universe. I control them all. What do we control? Nothing. In the grand scheme of things, we're on a speck of dust in the middle of a vast, vast billion trillion septillions of stars. Might be one times 10 to the 14th or one times 10 to the 23rd or whatever number they, they want to assign as an exponent. We control none of that. We can't even control ourselves. We're in such desperate need of a Savior, we can't even control our own tongue, according to James. And so, man's attempt to force scriptures to his understanding is the allegorical methodology. I'll just assign meanings. And they do this quite popularly, quite often, in the book of Revelation throughout church history. Well, the problem is, you're doing it from your tiny perspective. But how about a hundred years later or a thousand years later? Is that going to make any sense? And from this comes the various views of Revelation. Historical view, the uh, Predis view, I know I mispronounced that, but... Uh, and, and so on and so forth. 
Everyone is trying to, to look at it through their little lens. But we need to stop doing that, and we need to look at it through God's lens and pull the meaning out of Scripture. Now, the first four trumpets are like the first four seals. They deal with specific empirical events. Now, the empirical comes from non-empirical, Hebrews 11.3. The angels are dealing with spiritual energy. Not want to get all mystical on this now. We've got to stay grounded. We need to stay focused. These spiritual energies get translated by the angels into physical energies, physical manifestations that have physical effects. Just like man's attempt at government and controlling had physical effects. Famines, diseases, wars. These first four trumpets we've seen have physical manifestations on the land, on the sea, and now on the fresh waters. And the fourth one will be, of course, in the atmosphere, in the air. Which means that when we come to these terms, we have to understand that they were written at a time when words were less specific than what we use them as today. So today, when we see or think of star, we think of this huge, tremendously large, fiery glow in the heavens, whether it be our sun, Alpha Centauri, or whatever name or number you want to give them, that make up the galaxy and make up other galaxies and just tremendous. And, and a man... Earth could fit inside our sun or something to that nature. It's just tremendously large. Now, astrophysicists have called it a hot ball of gas, but it doesn't obey the law of gas. It's actually probably a, a hydrogen uh, matrix, kind of like graphite, laying matrices upon matrices upon matrices, and it acts like a liquid. At the very least, you can tell this just by looking at it. But back then, a star could be a comet. It could be a star far away. It could be a comet or a meteor, a comet streaking across the night sky. You wouldn't be able to see it in the daytime as it nears the sun. But it would also be reference to a meteor. It's streaking across the night sky. Sometimes you can see them in the daytime. As it's burning up in our atmosphere. Or it could also mean a spiritual being. Christ is the bright and morning star. And Satan who seeks to imitate Christ tries to pawn himself off as a day star. And in Latin, that is where we get the name Lucifer. 
Lucifer is not in the Hebrew, Daystar is. And so it could be any body of light. So when in doubt, we need to exegete scripture. We need to not go off into flights of fantasy, which we have difficulty restraining ourselves. Once you start assigning your own meanings, your own understanding, it's a slippery slope. Where do you stop that? Well, I stop it where I want to stop it. Well, how about the next person? Maybe they don't want to stop it there. Maybe they want to apply their own viewpoint and it's more fanciful, more imaginative, more unrestrained. Where do we stop it at? And we can't. And so that's why when we've come to these things, it's like a science lesson. Because I want to keep us grounded in reality. And reality, by not making it up and assigning physical aspects to it, but trying to show that these are things not only can we now, with some understanding, become aware of these forces at work around us, but probably were on display at least during Noah's cataclysm and periodically ever since. And Haley's Comet has been documented since, what, 1066? On a regular 75, 76-year basis. Mark Twain was born during the year of Haley's Comet, and he died during the year of Haley's Comet when he returned. And so we want to use a biblical application of Occam's razor, keeping it simple, sir. Not keeping it stupid, but keeping it simple and respectful. So we're going to just look for actual heavenly bodies rather than mystical, unexplainable apparitions. Now this is not to say we're going to do this every time we see this in Revelation. We're going to keep it in context. Because there are times as there were before. Remember the seven stars were the seven angels of the seven churches. Scripture told us that. So we didn't have to make it up. And so with Scripture, context is obviously prophetic and meant to be taken in that aspect. We're going to then change gears and look at it through those prophetic literary eyes. But where it's not there, where it's obviously empirical and physical, we need to thus look at it through empirical viewpoints, empirical eyesight. And that's what we're doing. 
And so it's about the science. Remember, science is that which is measurable, i.e. empirical. And it's repeatable. If it's not repeatable, it's not science. Now, it might be repeatable once every 2,000 years. It's still science. It doesn't appear repeatable to us because we don't live that long. So, And documentation literally is difficult after about 400 years in the past. Like I said, we do have some instances of documentation of solar eclipses back in the ancient world of comets back in the ancient world. But it's only been since the Renaissance post-medievalism period that we've gone into systemic, consistent documentation. In other words, in the modern era. And so the revelation and our understanding of revelation becomes clear the more that man knows about God's creation. Now, got to follow along the graphics in the handouts that I provide. Got to download it. So we need to have a clear understanding of the asteroid belt, the Kuiper belt, and the Oort cloud. And admittedly, the Oort cloud is more theoretical than actually proven. But it does take into account that which it cannot be accounted for via the Kuiper belt or the asteroid belt. Now, the asteroid belt is in the plane of the solar system which is relatively flat when you look at it here. On the graphic, you see the solar system. It's relatively flat, narrow plane, horizontally. And so is the Kuiper belt. Now, the Kuiper belt lies outside the solar system, beyond Neptune, beyond Uranus, beyond Pluto, if you want to accept that as a... uh, as a planet, they, they vacillate on that. But it's like the asteroid belt, which is also in the plane of the solar system, uh, out, outside Mars. Now, some of the comets may come from the asteroid cloud, but the, the longer period ones that are less than 200 years old can originate from the Kuiper belt, outside the solar system, but still under the influence of the solar system. Halley's Comet probably originated out of the Kuiper belt, and it's relatively close to our solar plane, and it comes in and it becomes a comet as it nears the sun, and and the radiation of the solar wind blasts and melts the ice, and you see this, this streaming tail behind it. Thus, the asteroid becomes a comet. 
and then it goes around the sun and passes back off. And then as it leaves the solar, dramatic solar winds behind, in other words, they have a less of an impact on it, uh, the body of the comet is no, no longer melting and the tail disappears, but it's been reduced in size, which means its mass has changed, which means that its orbit changes slightly. However, there are comets that are greater than 200 years and have a more eccentric orbit. In other words, they're not within that narrow horizontal plane of the solar system. They're more highly elliptical, more almost like a polar orbit, go over the top and, and very, very eccentric. Uh, an example of this would be the Shoemaker-Levy 9 series of comets that were first observed in 1993, I believe, 92, and impacted in Jupiter, at least on the cloud. And it was a dramatic event at the time. Probably you've never heard of it. That was over 30 years ago. Yeah, over 30 years ago now. But it created uh, a lot of consternation at the time. And its impact on Jupiter were quite well documented and created storms that lasted months, if not longer, in the upper atmosphere, just because of the violence of the impacts. So a star can mean a comet near or entering Earth's atmosphere causing catastrophic physical events. You have to remember, there is almost no way to detect these far off. They're not radiating in the gamma band or the x-ray band or the infrared band or the ultraviolet band. And so, if they're not sources of radiation, of radiating energy, then it's black against black, or it's dark gray against black. And it's very difficult to detect these until they become closer, a lot closer, unless they're common, of course, and then they're somewhat more detectable because they have a tail. And you can then spot the changes over a brief span of time. A brief span of time could be days, it could be weeks, it could be months. But there is no sign saying, hi, I'm a comet, or I'm an asteroid, and I'm new, look at me, give me a name. You don't even know they're there. And you may not know they're there until... They're very, very close, relatively speaking. And this, we always seem to get surprised by this. Well, we should be able to detect them. Well, how are you going to detect it? You shine, you're looking out in the night sky with a backdrop of billions and trillions of stars that are mainly galaxies, and you're trying to spot an even tinier source of light. And you're fuzzy. 
because the longer your aperture is open on your camera to try to collect enough light to expose film and, and obtain a picture, the fuzzier it gets, and the more noise it's there as you do it digitally. And so out of the fuzz and the noise, how do you find it? How do you find that which is the comet or which is the asteroid? I, it, it has no energy. So either it must be reflecting light from the sun and changing, or it has to have a tail. So the, it looks different and is changing. And so we see that these things are extremely d- d- difficult to spot. And you can't blame the ancients. Their frame of reference was not from space. They couldn't put satellites up. We couldn't even do it until the mid the late 20th century. We couldn't even prove Copernicus's theory until we put satellites in orbit outside the Earth and could see, literally, physically see, that the Sun was indeed the center of the solar system. See, Galileo was censored not because he said the sun's the center of the solar system and the Pope didn't like that because it violated the Bible. That wasn't the issue. The issue was he, Galileo was stating it as a fact. But he couldn't prove it. Therefore, it was not a fact. And he was censored wildly because of his hubris he was stating as a fact what he couldn't prove as a fact so here we again here again we see science on shaky ground and it's always been on shaky ground because science relies on the integrity of those who are using its methodology. And oftentimes they bend it for their own purposes. Newton was an egotistical maniac. He had no problems trying to coish those who had alternate theories to his. He had no problem touting his own horn, and manipulating his own mouth to support his own view. Now, his own views were right 90% of the time, 93% of the time, but they weren't correct 100% of the time. And we know that. And we knew that then. And so... We have to be careful. Sinful man is sinful man. We lie, cheat, and steal to promote ourselves. It's always about us. It's never about God. In fact, we'll just say that God doesn't exist. Romans 1, 18 through 28. Man has always done this. And we couldn't say that God doesn't exist Then he said, well, God's not real, but my God is real. Or my gods are real. Or my gods and goddesses are real. 
We're going to make it up. This is what sinners do. We make up worldviews to explain what we see without God. Now we need to talk about the Earth's water cycle because we're talking about fresh water. Here's a graphic, very basic graphic. Now we're all probably pretty familiar with the fact that open waters evaporate, moisture goes in the atmosphere, condenses in clouds, falls as precipitation, rain, hail, snow, whatever, and it comes back down and it hits the streams and it flows in the ocean, so on and so forth. Well, a lot of the water that falls on the land doesn't directly flow into an ocean. It just gets absorbed by the land, soaks down through the, the ground, the layers of the ground, the layers of the crust, and is filtered and cleansed and enters into a water table. Well, there'd be fissures or cracks in the granite, like in New England, and there'd be multiples of those, or in giant underground aquifers, like in the Midwest. The reason we need to understand this is because This comet, this meteor actually, as it comes through, is going to impact the Earth. But it's going to impact the Earth in such a manner that it only fractures a continent. Remember, the continents are shifting. They're probably moving tens of miles per, per month, per year. But they're moving as... Each tectonic plate is intact, moving as a mass. And they're rumbling as they interact together at their borders, at their seams. So you constantly have this rumbling, this, these earthquakes, these volcanic eruptions. Uh, we have the shifting magnetic poles, the reduced magnetosphere, more galactic and solar ionizing winds coming into the atmosphere, creating more clouds, more storms, but also hitting down, energizing the magma, the inner crust, the outer crust, and thus percolating and raising the temperature. And, and so we see all this instability going on. We, we don't want to forget that this is occurring. And these earthquakes are quite dramatic at times, uh, crushing the mountains, even the mountains in the ocean, the islands, so that uh, they're disappearing. And as these continents are shifting, they're shifting back together to form one. Now, all this is happening because God controls everything. He definitely controls the heavens. Let's go to uh, Psalm 147, verse 4. 
147, verse 4, and he, meaning God, determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our God in abundance in power. His understanding is beyond measure. Go to Job chapter 9. And this is Job talking. And Job is, like I said, Job does say things that are true. But he doesn't have it in the right context. Because it's still about him. It's still about works. He is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who has hardened himself against him and succeeded? Job should be listening to his own words here. He who removes mountains and they know it not, when he overturns them in his anger, who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble, who commands the sun and it does not rise, who seals up the stars, who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea, who made the bear and Orion and Pleiades and the chambers of the south, who does great things beyond searching out and marvelous things beyond numbers. See, even Job acknowledges that God controls creation. He controls the universe directly and at times dramatically. Now, the evolutionists have always maintained the asteroid comic, comet gap fallacy. The you know, the evolutionists in their discussions and debates with creationists have always laughed at uh, the God of the gaps. Every time there's a gap in, in being able to explain every single phenomenon, the creationists then say, well, God did it. Well, yeah. Well, grant that. God did it. But how is God doing it? Now remember, for science, it's got to be repeatable and measurable. Coherently measurable. And repeatable enough that we know it's repeatable. And that we can then gain consistent measurements from it. That's science. If it's a miracle, it's not science. It's still God. And you can still be... Observed in the empirical, if it has to be for us to detect it, otherwise, who knows? We'd never know it. I mean, how many angels are, and demons are in the room around you right now? You don't have a clue. You don't even know if there's any. Or there might be a tremendous amount. You just don't know, because you can't detect it. They're non-empirical. How many angels can dance on the head of a pen? It's a meaningless question because angels are not empirical. A pen is empirical. You can say none of them or you can say all of them. Because spiritual, non-empirical doesn't occupy the three dimensions that the empirical does. And so the question is incoherent and the answer would be equally incoherent from our frame of reference. Well, the evolutionists, they always have the asteroid of the gap. 
why is um, Mercury on its side got hit by a comet? How did the moon get formed? The earth got hit by a, a comet. And they constantly have these comets flowing in and out. How did the, the dinosaurs become extinct? Well, there was a comet. Meteor! Because it enters the Earth's atmosphere, now it's a meteor. Oh. Meteors, comets, asteroids. So they have the same problem. Every time they run into, well, how did something happen and they don't know for sure, then they, they, their MacGuffin is the asteroid or the meteor that comes up. Well, I don't want to say that's non-existent, but I will say that if they can use it, Christ can use it. And since Christ is the creator of this entire universe, Colossians 1, 10 through 15, or 15 through 20, he uh, is acknowledged as the creator of all that we see and observe. So Christ can use a meteor to fraction a portion of the earth's crust, disrupting the regional fresh waters. Now this could allow a mixing of the waters with the or close to the magma, close to the outer, outer uh, molten crust. Because remember, when a volcano erupts, if you've ever been close to lava, it, it has this oftentimes sulfuric smell, this just poisonous gas, this odorous gases. Uh, they just stink. Well, imagine what th this would do with the water that mixed with it. The water might vaporize the steam, but it's not going to stay steam. It's going to condense again, become part of the groundwater, and become the source of water for the streams, the rivers, as they come from out of the earth. And thus, you have this extent of bitter, non-potable Waters, non-potable means it's not drinkable. It's alkali. It's poisonous. And this water depends on location and the extent of the meteorite impact. That's right. When a meteor, which is in the atmosphere, could be flaming, if it impacts, it's now a meteorite. So you can have the same object be an asteroid, be a comet, because it's close to the sun, it has a tail coming at the earth, enter the atmosphere, become a meteor flaming across the sky, impact the earth to be a meteorite. And if it's impact, depending on its size and energy and an angle of, of impact, is enough, it could fracture that portion of the continental plate, cause the mixing of the waters. Poisonous. Wormwood. And the ancients would have seen this as the hand of God. And it'd been right. We look at it and say, random chance. No God involved. 
you can believe whatever you want to, but at the end of the day, you still got non-drinkable waters you got to deal with. And guess what? You can't stop it. There's not a movie where you can go up and drill holes and put nuke bombs and blow them up so you turn the line out of uh, one of the movies of the 90s. You're going to turn one dangerous, large falling rock into dozens of them. You're going to turn a bullet into a shotgun blast. And so you're going to cause that to go everywhere. See, it's just not possible. You're not going to change the orbital trajectory. And so we have to understand that while the language sounds magical, mystical, fantastical, because we don't believe in angels, right? Because we only believe in the empirical. Except much of our science is based on non-empirical. Energy is non-empirical. You can't define it. We define it by what it does. In fact, that is the definition of energy, the ability to do work. Well, what is doing the work? I don't know. What is electricity? I don't know. Well, moving electrons. Can, have we seen that? No, we measure it. What are we measuring? How do you know you're measuring electrons? Well, we made up this model. Yeah, see? We get into the circular reasoning here. Well, we made up this model that kind of works most of the time. And we're saying that it's the electrons that are negative. But we really just made it up. It kind of works. And it's created great things in our, our technology and stuff. Yeah, it does. So it kind of works. But that doesn't mean it's reality. It just means that it kind of works and it gives us a handle that helps us. But we need to understand our limitations about it. And so angels do exist. Bible tells us. Or you can do the Halloween thing and say ghosts exist. I'm not sure why you would do that. But people do that. And spirits exist. And demons exist. Or none of it exists. You get into this realm where it all depends on what you want it to be. On what you want it to believe. And there's no way to get beyond the empirical. There's no way to measure it. Curlian photography and all these other bogus techniques or the penal third eye are just that. Man's circular reasoning. All we have is the scripture. That's all you have to tell you the absolute truth. And God says, come, let us reason together. The epic of Gilgamesh does not say, come and let us reason together. None of these mythologies say, come, 
Let us reason together. They're fantastical. They're arbitrary. They're not coherent, even in their internal structure. Scripture is. The Bible is. God invites you to reason. And we've talked about this time after time after time in our study of Revelation. Because I want to keep us focused. I don't want us to go off on these multiple rabbit trails that so many people have over the millennia falling into these eschatological traps from which they do not recover. They sound good in the beginning, but they're not coherent. Now, fresh water is essential for life. You can't survive more than three to five days without water. You die. You go 40 days without food. Can't go three to five days without water. Water is absolutely essential. And the Oort cloud asteroids are unpredictable, hard to detect. All, in fact, all asteroids are unpredictable. Seemingly coming out of nowhere. Flaming when it becomes a meteor in the sky. Oh, look, there it is. Yeah, well, you can't do nothing about it. We can't do anything about it anyway. Now, wormwood is not a spirit. Could be a standard for a spirit. And we have to understand that in the original Greek, they were usually written in minuscules. It doesn't mean they were tiny. It means they were all small letters. There are a few manuscripts that were written in all capitals. Most languages, ancient languages, didn't have capitals and small letters like we do today. And so, Wormwood was capitalized to make it a proper name. Just like Satan in the Old Testament, it's not a name. It's an act. To accuse. Or it's, it describes the one who accuses. But in Greek, it became a name because they capitalized it. Wormwood was really an intestinal medication. It was bitter. And if you took too much of it, you could die. Now, I don't know if it was a hallucinogen or not, but you could die. In fact, it became a name for any bitter herb that could make you sick if not kill you 
Most plants in nature will kill you if you eat them. Yep. So we don't go out in the woods and start chewing on a bunch of plants trying to find food because most of them will kill you. Most of them are very dramatically poisonous or at least bitter and will make you sick. And that's what they're talking about here. And so what is happening is comet comes in. Boom. Everybody sees it flashing across the sky. It impacts someplace of some significance. Fractures the continental plate such that the groundwater is now contaminated with other aspects that are underground and becomes non-potable, whether it be a huge aquifer or, or whatever. And a third of the waters are now bitter or poisonous. But people need to drink. People will drink their own urine, even though it will kill them. People adrift on the oceans are driven to drink even the salt water, which will kill them because you get a salt overload. And the more you drink, the more salt overload you get, the more your body can't deal with it. And you have electrolyte imbalance and you die. Surrounded by water and you die. And thus people will be driven to drink because of thirst, but the water will be contaminated. A third of it, though, God's mercy. See, the day of his return draws near, and Christ dramatically illustrates man's inability to understand or control even his local environment necessary for life. We need Christ for life. We can't do it on our own. We can't control our emotions. We can't control our tongue. We even can't control our tempers. Especially in this day and age where people are more and more and more out of control driven by their anger, controlled by their anger and their loss. Rather than being able to and willing to sit down and reason together, they just stand and scream at each other and attack each other and want to destroy each other individually on the streets. This is what sin unrestrained, and more unrestrained, does. People, sinners, can't control themselves. We need Christ. Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. And Christians, 
as they're the salt scattered throughout a society, scattered throughout a culture, help to calm it down. Now, I don't mean religionists. I don't mean Christendom, because they're as bad as everybody else. I mean true, biblical, born-again, born-from-above Christians are the salt that calms it down. Like the control rod in a nuclear reactor slows the reaction down, preventing a runaway fission, a meltdown. But see, there are fewer and fewer Christians in society. Biblical, born from above, Christians. There are fewer and fewer and fewer. And society is on a runaway path to meltdown. Seen by increasing degradation and levels of violence and personal violence and corporate violence, and just the more people try to control through force, through currency, the more society goes out of control. They cannot control it. And so, the we need to understand also that uh, the scriptures, the flowing waters, always refer to God's Holy Spirit. While Contained waters often are references to demonic spirits and, and cisterns are a lower quality of water. It's what we uh, gather. And so we use this, not wells, cisterns, containers filled with water. That's not moving, it's not doing anything. And we, it just sits there. And we use out of it. Like a tank. But the problem is, is that uh, it gets stagnant. We need that flowing water. And when they're broken, it's a picture of spiritual bankruptcy. Jeremiah 2, 10 through 13. Man's boasting of controlling ecology are empty words. Man is ignorant of the empirical, of empirical nature. And when confronted with ignorance, when Job was confronted with his ignorance, he repented. But today, when people are confronted with their ignorance, they get angry. They get hostile. They get out of control. This is nothing new. This is what sin does. This is the effect of sin. This is the effect of sin on Cain way back in the early day. So much so that it actually distorted his face. 
God just made it permanent. You want to be angry? Fine. It started your face, you know. I'm going to let you keep that. As a reminder that you don't have control. You need to have control. Sin lies at your door and it desires to control you. But you should be controlling it. But we don't. We can't. And Cain certainly could not either. So the majority of mankind rejects Christ's plea to repent. Much like Job's three comrades. Yet even they eventually repented, unlike many throughout history. Job had to go offer, make offerings for them. The Job opened up. The book opened up with Job making offerings. But they were offerings that didn't count. But here, the offerings of Job do count. And he does make offering for his three friends, his three governors. We need to hear the warning. We need to repent lest a worse calamity comes upon the world. But it will come upon the world. This man does not repent. Ancient man did not repent. By and large. Nor will many of this period. Do you hear Jesus' call of repentance? Come, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Come. But we're going to see in Revelation 16, verses 4 through 9, that a worse calamity will come upon the world. Much worse. Because as man refuses to heed the trumpet announcements, the trumpet alerts, the trumpet calls to repentance, God will pour out the vials of wrath. Thank you.